1: Support for Start Making Sense comes from HBO. Don't miss the new season of Real Time with Bill Maher, the long-running Emmy-nominated talk show covering the week's news and featuring a panel of guests, including actors, activists, politicians, musicians, comedians, and more. Bill Maher's sharp, witty, and unpredictable show is a mainstay for current events, politics, and media catch his comedic monologue, his weekly special guests, and his rotating panelists live every Friday, beginning January 19th at 10 p.m., only on HBO. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Today we have a special feature the Reverend Dr. William Barber, architect of the Forward Together Moral Monday movement and president of the North Carolina NAACP, talking about white nationalism, patriotism, and Donald Trump. Also in this hour, Fortress America is crumbling, thanks in part to Donald Trump. For that, we'll speak with Alfred McCoy. But first... John Nichols has been following the recent Democratic victories in some state legislative races. They may provide a preview of the midterm elections in November. Trump's approval ratings have been sinking, even in the states he won in 2016. If the election were held today, he'd probably lose not just the popular vote, but also the electoral vote. However, he's not on the ballot this year. What matters now is who else is on the ballot. The 2018 midterm elections will be a critical test for the president's Republican Party. And if patterns hold... They could see a turn in the electoral math, sufficient to check and balance the president in Washington while we get rid of some of his allies in the states. How are we doing with this project? For a report, we turn to John Nichols. Of course, he's the nation's national affairs correspondent. His most recent book is Horseman of the Trump Apocalypse*. We reached him today in Madison. John, welcome back.
2: I'm delighted to
1: be with you. So... Where should we start? You're in Madison, let's start with Wisconsin. Well, here's the interesting thing about
2: about how political coverage plays out in the United States today. And it's very different than how it used to be. It used to be that special elections for state legislative seats around the country were often very big deals, seen as as real bellwethers, especially as they started to pile up for one party. Well, there was one in Wisconsin on the week of uh, the first anniversary of, of Trump's inauguration that got more attention than most, but didn't get you know, quite the attention it should have. And that was in a state Senate seat in the western part of Wisconsin. Now, Trump carried Wisconsin by 22,000 votes. That provided him with essential electoral votes to prevail in the Electoral College. He piled those votes up in western and northern Wisconsin This state Senate district cuts right through that region. It's been a Republican district for decades, and Trump won it in 2016 by 17 points. So it was a good, solid win for him there. On the Tuesday before the anniversary of Trump's uh, inauguration, they had a special election up there. It was called by Scott Walker, the Republican governor. Everybody was assuming it would go very well for the Republicans. They were running a state legislator who had been elected in much of the district already, and he was running against a woman who had never run for partisan office. She was a local school board member, a medical examiner, and she ran a good campaign. No question of that. But she didn't just beat the Republican, this Democratic woman, uh, Patty Schackner. She had a 37-point swing wow. from the previous election. That means that, that she won by 11 points, but the previous Republican had won by 26 points. They had them together— You get a 37 point swing. That was so epic. That was such a big win that even Scott Walker, the Republican governor, in a rare moment of honesty said, Whoa, that's a wake up call. Those are his own words for Wisconsin Republicans. And here's the significant thing what occurred in Western Wisconsin in mid January of 2018 wasn't the first time that a Democrat had won a a tightly contested, supposedly tough state legislative race around the country for an open seat. It was the 34th time. And again and again and again, Republicans have won or lost seats that they've held often for a long time in places where Trump had won. And overwhelmingly, the winners of these seats have been women, many of them drawn into politics by their fury frankly, or anger or whatever word we want to use uh, frustration with Donald Trump. Uh, What people need to understand is what uh, Carolyn Fiedler, who's one of the better kind of watch people on all this. She follows state house politics very, very closely. And she said people need to start waking up to the facts that Democrats keep winning these special elections in heavily gerrymandered Republican seats where Trump won just a year and a half ago.
1: Let me just review the numbers here. It's not just Patty Schachner in St. Croix County of uh, Wisconsin. You say there are 34 Democrats who have flipped states in state legislatures in the year since Trump took office. 22 of them have been women. That is pretty amazing. And here's the interesting thing.
2: EMILY's List has a running charting of all the women who have announced that they are in or preparing to run for offices in 2018. It's up to 26,000. 26,000? 26,000. These are for legislative races, gubernatorial races, and there are huge numbers getting into gubernatorial races, Senate races, House races, local races for county offices, for school boards, for all sorts of posts around the country. But as the folks from Emily's List are telling us, there's something amazing going on out there. These folks who are stepping up uh, are often inspired to run by their frustration with Trump, but they don't just run against Trump. What they're doing is they are running kind of new model campaigns with a lot more grassroots, a lot stronger messaging, Uh, They are often very impassioned men and women who are coming into these races. And uh, and I think they're they're breaking things open. You know, they're, they're running races that Democrats may have passed over and not paid as much attention to in the past. And what they're proving is that if you step up and if you've got a good message and you combine that with the broad theory across this country, anger with Trump, you can break through in places where folks didn't think you could. Uh, This opens up huge possibilities politically as regards 2018.
1: Well, we should just note that the Republicans have some women candidates too, and now it's time for your Minnesota Moment News from my hometown of St. Paul, which is actually just about a 45-minute drive from Patty Shachner's district in Wisconsin. That's right. Michelle Bachman, the one-time presidential candidate of the Tea Party who represented the Minneapolis suburbs in the House but then resigned in 2015, she says she has asked God whether she should run for the Senate seat vacated by Al Franken that's now occupied by the Democrat Tina Smith. It was three weeks ago that she made this announcement. We haven't heard from her about God's answer. I wonder if you have any updates on that.
2: Well, as a believer and, and somebody who's, who, you know, is, is certainly willing to accept the notion that, that people can, in prayer, get messages and at least get a sense of where things are going, um, I can only assume, I don't know, that Ms. Bachman is is continuing to wait for the message. And so taking it out of the religious context, let me just suggest that uh, I certainly hope she runs. I think that would be quite fascinating to have Michelle Bachman as the Republican nominee uh, in Minnesota uh, against, you know, presumably a Democrat who might actually be, I don't know,
1: yeah, yes, I think you I think you're right. I think the the DFL, as we call the Democratic Party in Minnesota, the Democratic Farmer Labor Party, I bet they would love to run Tina Smith against Michelle Bachman.
2: I think they'd probably pass the petitions for Michelle Bachmann.
1: <laughs> so, uh, what about the politics here? Are is, is there still a battle between the Clinton Democrats and the Bernie Democrats over who will represent the party in these uh, in these new challenges?
2: Absolutely, um, that exists. It's a it's a phenomenon. I'd be a little careful about calling it Clinton Democrats versus Bernie Democrats. I think it's there's a a, a deeper reality, uh, and it, it goes beyond personalities. The Democratic Party has always had divisions between its progressive wing and its more moderate, more compromising wing. We're going to see some of that. There's no question, uh, and and I can tell you, the the evidence of that, which is which is really a big deal, in gubernatorial races across the country, uh, in states where there are Republican governors, in many cases you're seeing seven, eight, nine, ten, even more candidates. Many of them credible candidates get into those Democratic primaries, so you're going to have a lot of crowded and and I would argue impassioned. Democratic primary fights. And, you know, John, I've covered politics for a very long time. I've never, ever believed that primaries are a problem. I think primaries are where you hone your skills, you get people energized, you rally them. And, uh, you know, I guess you probably hope that people don't tear each other to shreds too much. But, you know, by and large, if I have to choose, say, oh, yeah, I want some anointed candidate who's got some friends in Washington or some friends in the state house to be the nominee for governor or for a statewide office or for state legislature, uh, versus somebody that the members of the party get excited about and run run forward. I'll go with the grassroots on that. I'll, I'll say let's have the primary, and I'll give you a good example from your own state of Minnesota. Okay, there's a, a college professor back now. It's in the better part of thirty years ago. Uh, decided he was going to run for the U.S. Senate. He'd never held statewide office. He was running against people who were more prominent legislators, and I think it was a state aid commission in a Democratic primary. But he was really good with people, and they nominated that guy, Paul Wellstone, and, and he did okay.
1: <laughs> and we still remember him. He's still the hero of the DFL of Minnesota. And that's what I'm saying: is primaries are good. There's one other candidate I want to ask you about, and that is the woman who's running for governor in Maine, Diane Russell. She seems like a remarkably promising candidate.
2: She is quite something. I, I, you know, Most people who are listening to this podcast have seen her. And by the way, I want to tell you, she's one of a number of women running up there in Maine and a number of candidates in that primary. So, you know, due respect to all the contenders but uh, Diane Russell got a lot of attention back in 2016 she gave an incredibly strong speech to the Democratic National Convention and it was a it, she was a Bernie delegate to the convention a Bernie Sanders delegate but she gave a speech calling for unity as well as reform of the party's nominating process and uh the energy that she brought to it uh the reaction of the crowd Uh, Even, by the way, not just Bernie backers, but but a number of Clinton backers really marked her as somebody who's got some skills, some very strong skills for communicating. And she's a veteran state legislator uh, who, she lost a race a couple years ago, so she's not going to win every contest. She went down and she got very involved in a lot of nuclear disarmament issues, a host of other things. And she came back to Maine this year or last year and decided to run a, a true grassroots in the streets and in the quarters of power campaign for governor she's campaigned very strong on uh legalization of marijuana and voting reform and and a whole bunch of democracy issues very very interesting candidate one of many up there in, in fairness but what she did that that got my attention was that she sent a message out right before the these massive women's marches that we saw uh around the time of the anniversary of trump's uh inauguration And her message was, we march, dot, 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 into office.
1: John Nichols, read him at thenation.com. John, thanks so much. Always great to have you on the show.
2: It's a pleasure, my friend.
1: Now it's time for something completely different. Fortress America is crumbling Thanks in part, at least, to Donald Trump. For that, we turn to Alfred McCoy. He's the J.R.W. Smale Professor of History at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and the author most recently of the book In the Shadows of the American Century, The Rise and Decline of U.S. Global Power. He's also a regular contributor to The Nation and to Tom Dispatch. Al McCoy, welcome back. Thank you, John. The decline of American global power that you've been writing about lately didn't begin on January 20th, 2017, when Trump took the oath of office. There were already signs of it before that day. Let's talk about what happened before Trump.
3: Well, first of all, the United States had probably about half of the world economy at the end of World War Two. By 1960, we were down to 40% of the world economy, Recently, depending on how you measure it, it's around 20%. And if you take the more objective index of, of purchasing power parity, in other words, how much is a, a, a dollar buy you in China versus how much it buys in the United States, we have about 15% of the global economy. And as our, our share of the global economy has declined, so has our, our raw international power. And so the U.S. influence in the world was fading. Uh, quite markedly, even before Trump was taking power. So therefore, uh, if you will, the U.S. international leadership is no longer a given based upon, if you will, the undeniable fact of American economic and military supremacy. As American power fades, leadership becomes ever more paramount, ever more important into maximizing the remaining U.S. power on the international stage. And that's why leadership has proved so important in the last 10, 15 years in U.S. political history.
1: Of course, it's China whose power is uh, looming uh, over the United States right now. In At Tom Dispatch and in The Nation, you write about, a new Silk Road under construction. I didn't know about this. I, I get ads inviting me on guided tours of the Silk Road, Kyrgyzstan, Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, Azerbaijan, and Kazakhstan. They say it's exotic and ancient and that visiting there is a once-in-a-lifetime experience. What, what's the new Silk Road you're talking about?
3: initially when china joined the world trade organization in 2002 everybody thought that china was going to join the international community on our terms they would make nice we just buy them into the system and they will accept the system as it is and they will but they will they will play well in groups okay and china once it got its footing internationally began to do otherwise China devised a, a sophisticated two-part strategy for demolishing U.S. global power. Uh, the one thing I think you have to understand is that beneath that massive economic and military apparatus that the United States built for the exercise of global dominion after World War II, it rested on on very strong geopolitical foundations. As the historian at Oxford, John Darwin, has written, the United States was the first power in 600 years to control the axial ends of Eurasia. It was the first power to actually dominate the whole of the Eurasian continent from our NATO alliance in Western Europe and through four bilateral trade pacts running from Japan through South Korea, the Philippines, all the way down to Australia. And then between these two axial points, we laid down, if you will, circles of steel, uh, multilateral military pacts, three great fleets, the Uh, the 6th Fleet in the Mediterranean, the 5th Fleet in the Persian Gulf, and the 7th Fleet in the Pacific, hundreds of military bases, and in the last 10 years we've built 60 drone bases stretching from Sicily to Guam in the Pacific. And China had the idea that they could break the U.S. dominion over the Eurasian landmass through a two-part strategy. One, they began building in the last couple years Seven bases in the South China Sea. They spent 200 billion dollars to build a modern port, transforming the sleepy fishing village of Guador into a, a, a modern port on the Arabian Sea. They just opened last year a port uh, in a facility in Djibouti at the other end of the Arabian Sea. But more fundamentally, China made about four trillion dollars from the time they entered the World Trade Organization in 2002. And they spent more or less about a trillion dollars laying down this massive infrastructure of rails, gas pipelines, oil pipelines to transform Europe and Asia from two continents, which is anomalous because it's the only continent on the planet in which a unitary landmass is divided into two continents. And that's because of the the empty thousands of miles at the center of Eurasia. Well, China's laying down this massive trillion dollar infrastructure that's going to stretch from the Atlantic to the Pacific and that will unify Eurasia. Moreover, they've, they've invested another trillion dollars uh, by 2025, investing in Africa, integrating to that, and they will be forming Europe, Africa, and Asia into a unitary market, a unitary landmass the center of the world economy, and the center of geopolitical power. That's their grand vision.
1: Now we get to Donald Trump. Of course, he ran for office saying he would get a better deal from China. How's that working out?
3: Uh, uh, Trump, almost as if by some malign design, uh, seems to be setting out to to damage, uh, if not destroy, this this architecture of U.S. geopolitical power. Uh, last year, Trump made two major international trips, and they made two trips, okay? His first trip in May, he went to Europe. He visited NATO headquarters. He attacked our NATO allies for failing to pay their fair share of, of defense expenses. But more fundamentally, when he was at NATO headquarters, he refused to affirm the uh, the, the principle of common defense, i.e., one NATO member is attacked, NATO defends that member. Without the principle of common defense, NATO isn't NATO. Trump refused to defend that principle. Uh, He's since you know, said, oh, yes, of course, the you know, White House said, yes, we, we mean it. But that, that, that refusal to make that statement in, uh, when he was visiting NATO headquarters in, in Brussels just sent shockwaves throughout Europe. Suddenly, Europe was aware. As, as Angela Merkel said in the aftermath of Trump's visit, that Germany and Europe must chart their own destiny. And then in November, he visited Asia. He made his grand 12-day tour of Asia. And uh, <clears throat> he behaved very nicely and politely until he came to the Asia-Pacific Economic uh, uh, Cooperation meeting in Vietnam at the end of his tour. And he, he started attacking multilateral trade packs. Um, And everybody was aware that when Trump came into office, he canceled something called the Trans-Pacific Partnership, a pact of 12 nations that was designed by President Obama to redirect 40 percent of world trade away from China across the Pacific towards the United States. And uh, Trump canceled that pact in his first week in office. He now attacked the at, at that Vietnam meeting. He attacked the whole idea of multilateral trade pacts. And in a kind of rejoinder to Trump, the other 11 members of the Trans-Pacific Pact announced at that same meeting that they were reviving the pact, that they were making steps to move forward without the United States. China also appeared at, uh, at that Vietnam meeting. Uh, Xi Jinping gave a fulsome uh, speech embracing international trade, and China is pushing its own 16-nation regional cooperation trade pact, to pull all that trade away from the United States and towards China. So, in effect, Trump has damaged, if you will, the two key pillars of U.S. geopolitical power, kind of hammer blows against them, damaging NATO and Western Europe and damaging those multilateral relations with the Asia-Pacific powers.
1: The other thing that Trump set out to do was to enlist Chinese Help in setting limits on North Korean threats to the United States. How's that worked out?
3: Um, China, I think, has played a very sophisticated and long-term strategic hand. Uh, they, 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 if you will, you signaled to Trump and have indicated to Trump that they're going to cooperate. The Washington or or Trump strategy is kind of a triangulation strategy. Okay, in other words, we shove Be- uh, we, we 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 nudge Beijing, and then Beijing pushes Pyongyang, and Pyongyang North Korea stops its missile tests and moves towards disarmament. That's the whole theory, and so <clears throat> this puts China in a in a if you will in a in a superb bargaining position. So they. Make these gestures towards getting uh, uh, North Korea to to stop their nuclear tests. They send emissaries. They they pour, they cooperate with the sanctions. On the other hand, China is playing a much longer term diplomatic hand, which has two parts. First of all, pushing the U.S. military out of South Korea, driving a wedge between uh, South Korea and the United States, uh, getting the U.S. military off the Korean Peninsula long-term, short-term, ending the joint U.S.-Korean military operations. Also, China is playing upon this to stop U.S. economic pressures on China. Trump promised he was going to equalize trade and all that. And also, very importantly, getting the United States to back away from defending freedom of navigation in the South China Sea. Uh, China has built seven bases, transforming through dredging atolls in the South China Sea and the Spratly Islands into military bases. Uh, In 2016, the the permanent court of arbitration in The Hague ruled against China, said that those atolls gave China no claim to territory. Well, China has actually got something called the nine-dash line. China isn't just claiming claim to those bases. China claims that the South China Sea this international waterway that's the home to 5 trillion dollars in world trade that, that that's chinese sovereign territory that's their claim they're claiming claim to an ocean as, as sovereign territory the united states under president obama challenged china by very aggressive freedom of navigation patrols and under trump there have been no major freedom of navigation patrols for the past 6 months in effect we've ceded The South China Sea to China. Yeah, so so in other words, China has played a long, clever, diplomatic hand, while Washington under Trump has been focused obsessively and narrowly on the North Korea issue. And China's winning.
1: Last question. I think a lot of our friends on the American left would initially be happy at the idea that America's imperial power was waning, but would a world under Chinese hegemony be better for the United States or for the
3: rest of the world? When people talk about U.S. decline and people on the left you know, think that maybe that's not a bad thing, what they're thinking about is the grim side of the equation— the U.S. military bases, the nuclear force, the U.S. special forces operating as they are now in about 75% of the nations around the world, all that, okay? What, what they don't realize is that, as, if that if that grim power fades too quickly, it's very likely that the more liberal aspect of that delicate duality, the U.N., the international rule of law, the commitment to human rights, woman rights, to share peace and prosperity, that that too will decline. Because China, as Edward Wong said in his review, uh, he's the former New York Times correspondent, did a review of China's rise to geopolitical power, and it said that basically what China is is, is standing for right now is blackmail, bribery, and raw realpolitik pressure that undercuts this more liberal side of that delicate duality. So. If the U.S. declines too quickly, too readily, creates a vacuum, and China moves in on its own terms, it could be a a less equitable world instead of a more equitable world.
1: Alfred McCoy, he wrote about the crumbling of Fortress America for the nation in Tom Dispatch. Thank you, Al. Thank you, John. Now we have a special feature, the Reverend William Barber II, talking about white nationalism, patriotism, and Donald Trump. The Reverend Barber is the architect of the Forward Together Moral Monday movement. He's also president of the North Carolina NAACP and pastor of the Greenleaf Christian Church, Disciples of Christ in Goldsboro, North Carolina. And he's co-author of the book, The Third Reconstruction, How a Moral Movement is Overcoming the Politics of Fear and Division. Finally, he's the 2016 recipient of the Puffin Nation Prize for Creative Citizenship. He's been filing regular dispatches for the nation on the southern movement for racial justice. He gave this talk last month on the nation cruise.
4: I think we start with Trump, let's say that Trump, not just Trump, but Trump and many of those who support him are white nationalists and white supremacists. I think we have to say that very clearly. And for me, that is not how they, based on how they stood at, about Charlottesville. It's based on the entire um, uh, set of politics and policies uh, that they support that often doesn't "Quote unquote," use a racist language to describe them, which is what, um, what was his name? That um, uh, he was a campaign manager for, for Bush and others. Um, at- Carl, Lee, at- R- oh, yeah. Lee Atwater t- yeah. said that we're going to reframe white right, racism in a way that you don't sound. So that, yesterday, last night, we passed racist legislation because Car um, uh, Lee Atwater said we would talk, we would stop talking about race. Actually, he said we would stop using the N word we would talk about entitlement reform, states' rights, and tax cuts. He said it would sound extremely economic, but in fact it would be deeply racist. It would hurt black and brown people the most and poor whites, but it would also create a situation and a a theme that basically blames poor black people and brown people for the problems of white people and create a, a constant uh, dissonance and separation. So, now white, racist, white supremacy is narcissistic, mm-hmm. it is rooted in idolatry, and it is a lie, right? It is a lie. So there's no wonder Trump would say, I and I alone can save it. That's, <laughs> that's what white supremacy does, that's what white nationalism does. Um, I said to my union friends that those that voted for Trump because of what he promised them about um, certain agreements, I said, you should have talked to my auntie who used to teach us, if you scratch a liar, you find a thief. (laughs) So what would make you think you could trust Trump on jobs and on living wages and those kinds of issues if the first thing he did to campaign was, was expose his racism? And he actually exposed the kind of racism and white supremacy that Richard Spencer, who by the way went to Duke for a little while, yeah. right, working on a PhD in European studies. Mm-hmm. Richard Spencer says that the first battle of white nationalism today is the attack on immigrants. That's, right. that's what he says. And he said that once Trump came down those escalators and attacked Mexican, that, he said that's our man. Because they see that today as the war, the first war. Now, white nationalism, white supremacy. Now, I know what brother said, where am I going? I'm, I'm going there. White nationalism, white supremacy is not just anti black, it's anti democracy. Now, we've always had to battle. That is America's original sin. It's what has infected and invaded our politics. White supremacy, white nationalism that, that confuses. Where, as Dr. King said, we end up having a high blood pressure of creeds and anemia of deeds, right? So what have we always done? What does patriotism look like in a nation where we struggle with narcissism and with idolatry? You know, American exceptionalism is a form of idolatry. Now, I'm a theologian by training, and idolatry is the first sin of the Bible idolatry, self-worship. Once you do that, all the other things follow. Injustice, attack on women, attack on children, whatnot. So what does patriotism look Well, 2,600 years ago, a prophet named Jeremiah was struggling with the issue of how to love Israel, how to make her better, but, how, but, but I need to question the narcissistic leadership. And he received this word of how to be a good patriot, if you will, or a good prophet. And I'm using those words interchangeably because I believe in a kind of prophetic patriotism that engages in subversive hope, mm-hmm. right? That subversive hope. That's where you said it's got to be hopeful. It's not just to tear a nation apart, but it's to build a nation up. I remember when we started Mar Monday, some folk didn't want us to carry the flags. I said, why? They said, we hate the flags. I said, well, no, 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 we, we don't carry it. We're just gonna kind of get it straightened out. you know." And I wanna carry it because that blue section in the flag stands for justice, right? And that's why all the stars are in there because until there's justice for all, then the flag really isn't flying properly. And I understand, I love Cabernet, for instance, kneeling because kneeling is a very holy position. We haven't talked about that part of the kneeling. I'm like, how are these people against him kneeling? I mean, really? That's one of the, that's one of the, the most holy positions to kneel in. Well, anyway, going back to Jeremiah, Jeremiah said, was told, go down, to, if you want to be good to Israel, if you want Israel to be better, go down to the king's palace. Don't send a tweet.
3: <laughs>
4: it's in the Bible. It's in the Bible. Jeremiah yeah, 22. Yeah. New edition. Right. It says, go down to the king's palace and tell the king, stop. Passing policies that hurt the poor children. That's right. Stop hurting the immigrants. That's right. Stop um, charging people usury. Mm-hmm. Stop making your work- workers work for nothing, and stop using policy to murder people. That's patriotism. Mm-hmm. That's right. okay. Patriotism. What is patriotism? Patriotism is. Patriotism is. Is um, uh, Patriotism is Justice Harlan mm-hmm. on the Supreme Court in the late 1880s, 1890s, and being known for being the great dissenter. Even though he lost sometimes eight to one, but he wrote these dissents that would, la- these moral dissents. He almost sounds like a preacher if you read some of those dissents. And he writes them and lays a foundation for Charles Hamilton, Houston, and others. I hope I'm right on that. You know, the great dissenter, that's that's, that's patriotism. Patriotism in the time of, of, from a moral perspective, is raising the question that Howard Thurman said, where you stand on the side of the dispossessed is the measure of your humanity. Patriotism is, is Henry Thoreau being asked, will you stop and repent for all of this civil disobedience? And he said, well, the only thing I might repent for is for not asking sooner what demons possessed me so long to keep, possess me to keep me quiet so long. That's, right. That's patriotism. Patriotism is police and, and others killing a teenage boy who had a lisp claiming that he whistled at a white woman in Money, Mississippi. And you hear about that as a black woman who is not nonviolent, i.e. Rosa Parks was not nonviolent. Read the real story. Read Read the radical life of Rosa Parks. She didn't even believe, she didn't even let a black man date her that didn't carry a gun because she had investigated rapes all over the South. And she knew how vulnerable a black woman was when she walked, when she went anywhere. Rosa Parks didn't want to date a black man who didn't carry a gun. But for a better nation, hear what I'm saying? Instead of picking up guns to go after those cops, she used her training from Highlander. And on today, 62 years ago, today, roundabout right now, Huh? Rosa Parks would use all of her character, all of her, 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 her power as a, as a community figure at the local level. Mm-hmm. today, mm-hmm. and she would sit down and create a spark. And if you believe that it was unplanned, mm-hmm. if you believe that they were able to run 50,000 copies of a flyer off, over the weekend on those old mimeograph machines that you used, if you wanna believe that, then go ahead. But what you should know is that the women of Montgomery had been fighting for a long time. Rosa Parks had learned organizing, and she knew that a spot, and she knew that America would not be better unless she sat down. But she sat down rooted in a deep moral framework that I'm doing this because of something higher. What is going on is legal according to man's law, but it's illegal according to God's law. Finally, patriotism moral, moral, in, in terms of, in, in terms of um, morality is reclaiming, picking up our constitutions and dusting them off. Mm-hmm. Dusting them off. And, 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 find, and asking ourselves why have we let people make us stop using language in the Constitution. That's right. And gra- reclaiming that language like we, like um, acknowledgement of frailty as a nation, because it says in order to become a more perfect union, that is admittance that we are not. That helps under, undermine that narcissism, that tendency to idolatry as a nation, or that first principle, what is it, freedom? No. Freedom doesn't come up first. Establishment of justice. Promoting the general welfare. Welfare? <laughs> <That's right. laughs> I know. Welfare, yes! That's a deep, why did we stop using that word? Welfare. Common, the, the common defense. Common defense of the common man, common person. Domestic tranquility and then you have a freedom worthy of passing on to posterity. So part of moral is claiming the deep moral principles of, 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 of this nation, what we've said on paper even when we haven't kept it. And finally, moral politics, uh, morality in politics in this moment is understanding that somebody like Trump and others Roy Moore, all of them, who put their hands on Bibles, swear and claim about being Christian and then pass these unchristian laws. You cannot in this moment talk about moral politics and not challenge the heretical form of religion that goes around claiming to be Christian, claiming to be biblical evangelicalism, when in fact, it is one of the worst forms of heresy that, that, that history has ever seen. And it is a purchased form of heresy. You gotta go back to when Sun Oil and General Motors and, a, and the National Chamber of Commerce literally went out to purchase pulpits after the New Deal, 1935, 36, 37. It's a long history, I won't get into it. But we have to challenge that with <clears throat> The faith, now, hear me, because I know some of you said, but I'm not Christian. I'm not talking about you being Christian. What I'm talking about though, is we cannot let this masquerade go on without having somebody that are willing to stand up and say, wait a minute, I'm an evangelical, right? I'm a Christian, and there are 2,500 scriptures in the Bible that deal with how you treat the poor and how you treat the least of these and how you treat the hurting and the broken. And, and love is at the center of it and justice is in the core of it. And you are no longer gonna get a pass. In fact, I, I can't let you get a pass because you'll never get redeemed, you'll never get better. <laughs> right. So I've got to challenge that because we cannot underestimate the power of heresy to falsely inform narcissistic leaders to the point that they literally believe that what they are doing is of God or is the right thing. And in these days and time, we have to challenge, we have to challenge the heresy. As Jim Wallace says, a white evangelicalism, which is a euphemism for old white men. Okay. Now, that's a long, and I know I've been a little long, but, but we have to challenge it. As I said to Franklin Graham when I went to meet with him one time, and, and uh, I asked him, looking right at him, he served, and the day we went to meet with him, he served watermelon and chicken and hot sauce. <laughs> and he asked me that did did I want any of it. I said, no. But I, I said, but I do want to ask you a question: Have you ever even read the Bible? <laughs> do you even know Jesus, the brown-skinned Palestinian Jew, who was crucified for his revolutionary acts and because he was, in the real sense, a true patriot and challenged the narcissism and the narcissistic leaders of his day? So. In that sense, my brother Victor, I think we have to grab out, in this moment, our deepest moral values in the Constitution and our deepest moral values in religion, and we have to lift those up. Because everything you all claim to care about in this room, if you go back to the core, nothing that you believe in, even down to democratic socialism, at some place doesn't have a deep moral core underneath it that helps to undergird it. And we can't leave that untapped anymore in this society.
1: The Reverend William Barber speaking last month on The Nation Cruise. Finally, a word about this week's episode of Dave Iron's Edge of Sports podcast. Of course, that's our sister podcast at The Nation, hosted by the magazine's sports editor. This week, Dave talks with former NFL linebacker Aaron Mabin about the personal journey that led him to become an art teacher in Baltimore. Dave also talks about the serial abuse that took place under the auspices of USA Gymnastics and about the first openly gay athlete to compete in the Winter Olympics. That's this week on the Edge of Sports podcast, where sports and politics collide. Tune in every Tuesday at thenation.com slash edgeofsports. Start Making Sense, the Nation podcast, is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles, located in the heart of Hollywood with technical assistance from Justin Allen. Our show is recorded and edited by Lyra Smith. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is our engagement editor. Katrina Vanden is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense at iTunes, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts.